It's Monday, June 28th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me, Mr. Jason Moser. Good to see you. Good to see you. And let me just say, you, you look you look well-rested. You look like you've been well-fed, Chris. Anyone who goes to Charleston, South Carolina, and is not well-fed <laughs> is doing something wrong. Yeah, yeah. I'll um, vouch. I'll vouch. <laughs> uh, apologize for the quality of my voice. Somehow picked up a cold over the weekend. Um, we got a few things to get to. We're going to talk entertainment news. We've got some allocation strategy to discuss. We're going to begin with the deal of the day. Etsy is buying ELO 7, which is often referred to as the Etsy of Brazil. Now, you may say, doesn't Etsy already operate in Brazil? Yes, they do. <laughs> and ELO 7 is going to remain as its own brand. It's going to keep the branding. Um, $217 million. This is a much smaller deal than the one Etsy did recently for Depop in the UK. But it looks like Wall Street is very happy with this deal because shares of Etsy up around 6%. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I definitely understand that. I do agree with it. I think it, I think it's a good deal. Um, I, I think when you look at the the business of Elo Seven. I mean, it it is a small business, right? But it is growing very quickly. Etsy does have a presence uh, in in Brazil to an extent. But when you look at Etsy's business overall, I mean, twenty two percent of overall revenue comes from outside the U.S. and U.K. markets. So so Latin America in in, in mainly Brazil still still a small part of the business. So I think this um, makes sense to to really. Uh, gain more share in that space. And, I mean, there's there's a good reason why they're doing that. And you look at Latin American uh, e-commerce penetration today, it's still less than 10%. Uh, it's pegged to hit $29 billion in 2021. And the, the forecasts are for that to grow uh, 26% annually through 2024. So, clearly, a, a big opportunity there, and, and it's it's very believable. I mean, we, we of course, have seen the move towards e-commerce and, and the success that Etsy has had uh, domestically, mainly here today, but but really globally. I mean, it is something that is that is starting to pick up um, on a global on a global level. And I think that uh, for for the business for Etsy, I mean, two hundred and seventeen million dollars. That is, I mean, that's not chump change. It's but it's it's not a lot in 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 the context of that business. I mean, it's about twenty five percent of the total free cash flow that the company brought in uh, over the last twelve months. So I mean, they're going to make this back standing on on their heads, really. And then uh, they'll be able to use their expertise uh, that that is that has helped them build out this this network in Etsy, and and they're going to be able to work on building building out a successful network with Elo Seven. I mean, I think it all really is. In, in the name of this strategy, it's it's they're they're focused on the strategy of becoming a house of brands, and uh, so so whether it's Reverb or whether it's Elo Seven, uh, Depop, it's 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 this seems to be the strategy that they're taking, and uh, judging from the numbers, it seems to be working. I was going to say because there, we've seen companies go the acquisition route, and we've seen both sides, right? We've seen the companies oh, yeah. that say we're buying you, and you're now going to be wearing our branding. And then we've seen companies go the other route uh, and say, no, we want to have a network. Everything has its own branding. And it really seems like it just comes down to execution. The, like you, you, It doesn't matter the industry. You can find companies that have done this well in both directions. 
Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, I, I think I, I, I personally, I mean, I like the idea that they're bringing um, Elo Seven in and, and kind of letting them continue to do their own thing. It's very, it's very Buffett esque, right? I mean, that's kind of Berkshire Hathaway's mo is is focus on bringing good businesses into your family and then let, let those good businesses just keep doing their thing, right? You don't need to fix something that isn't broken. Um, I mean, it's it's too early to say whether Elo 7 is ultimately going to be successful or whether it is broken. I mean, I, I don't think, um, based on the numbers that we've seen, there really would be a reason to say it's having problems. I mean, there are 1.9 million active buyers to go with 56,000 active sellers. Um, and, and those are two important metrics, right? Those are metrics that we keep uh, keep keep an eye on with with Etsy, and, and so I think that we'll continue to follow uh, those same types of metrics with Elo Seven. It, it gives you some clarity into the business to understand how that business is doing on its own. Uh, they're going to rely on a lot of expertise from Josh Silverman, the CEO of Etsy, and, and his team uh, as as they continue to build out the the Etsy payments and the Etsy ads side of the business, and really uh, focusing on building out this this very productive and healthy give-and-take relationship between buyers and sellers, right? I think they have such a good perspective on really what matters most for their business. I mean, buyers, I mean, obviously, they're crucial. That's that They're, they're the ones that are buying stuff and giving you money. But, but without sellers, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. And so Etsy has done a wonderful job through the years of, of building their business and making sure, ensuring sellers' success. Uh, and, and so I think that if they can continue with that philosophy – and, and they they continue to build those those other brands out uh, with that same mindset. It it really, I mean, this is an exciting business. I'm a shareholder myself. I feel really really good about owning these shares. Um, and, and I I just man, it seems like it's a really bright future. So uh, so this this will be one more uh, hopefully a strong brand to add to the portfolio. One thing before we move on uh, from last week, I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, the Doximity IPO. Yeah, uh, Doximity goes public at twenty six dollars a share. I believe it closed at fifty three on opening <laughs> day, so it basically yeah. doubled off the IPO price. Uh, this is a business that has been called both the LinkedIn for doctors. It's also been called the Teladoc Killer. Um, <laughs> how do you think of Doximity? Well, I I. Don't think of it as a teledoc killer, although I do love it whenever I hear someone say, oh, that's the teledoc killer, it's the Netflix killer, it's the Tesla killer, because that, that really just, to me, it reinforces what those companies that, that, that they think are going to be killed are doing, right? I mean, it, it's, it's, also, it's also all to say that when you look at the healthcare market, I mean, it's something like $4 trillion in healthcare spend just domestically every year. Um, I mean, this is a massive market opportunity, and it is not a zero-sum game. Uh, with that said, I think I think the reason for the enthusiasm with Doximity, I mean, this is a pretty compelling business from a number of different angles. Um, they, they were founded in 2010, have been around for a little while. Uh, but I think what has the market really kind of excited about this business, to be honest with you, you're not going to believe this, Chris, but it actually makes money. It's actually profitable, which is... Now, now when you say profits... I'm not talking about adjusted. I'm not talking about non-GAAP. I'm not talking about some newfangled metric or terminology that, that we're unfamiliar with. I mean, it's just a company that straight up is net income positive. And, and that uh, is, 
hey, listen, that's kind of a big deal in today's day and age, right? you got a lot of companies that are going public uh, that, that have not reached that threshold yet, and it's not very clear when they'll reach it. Um, and and it's, it's, listen, it's not to say that we might not see stretches where Doximity goes into the red if they uh, decide to reinvest heavily in the business, but it does make money a few different ways. I mean, they have a marketing side of the business, a hiring side of the business. And in the telehealth side of the business, it's a very new part of the business. I mean, that's encouraging that they're doing it. I mean, they see kind of where that puck is going, and, and they're making those investments. Uh, but, but really, I think it, it is the excitement about the actual economics of the business seem, seem promising. And it is focused on a very specific market in, in physicians. And um, it, obviously, a, a big market opportunity uh, with a lot of different ways uh, to, to, to ultimately make money. And so, so perhaps that's the enthusiasm behind Doximity. We'll see how they do with their first earnings report. Yeah. I well, I mean, you make sure, look, too, they, they have a lot of powerful customers. Yes. I mean, their customers are... Their, their customers are not the physicians that are logging in, like, to Doximity, right? I mean, their customers, really, they're the healthcare organizations, the pharmaceutical manufacturers, medical recruiting firms. I mean, they're the ones purchasing the subscription, uh, the subscriptions for Doximity services. And so, they have very big, powerful customers. And if, and if you know, you, we, we talk about the power of networks all the time, and if, if Doximity does what it does very well in its core market is finding a lot of value there. Well, it's going to be sticky. That probably can lead to some higher switching costs down the road and perhaps some pricing power. And it'll offer the, 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 the company uh, the opportunity to build out new, new avenues of revenue, so to speak, like, that, like what they're doing with the telemedicine offering right now. So, yeah, I, I, I certainly understand the enthusiasm behind the business. F9, the Fast Saga, which is the ninth movie Yes, the ninth movie in the Fast and the Furious franchise. It took in $70 million at the box office for the opening weekend here in the U.S. Worldwide, it's now north of $400 million. You tell me, does this, does this signal movies are back? Because you know me, I'm a movie fan. I'm a fan of going to the movies. And this is a great opening. This is the biggest opening weekend since the end of 2019 that we've seen. And yet, I feel like we're going to get more data or a better answer to this question in a couple of weeks when Black Widow comes out. Well, far be it from me to just blatantly disagree with Vin Diesel, right? I mean, he said <laughs> cinema is back. So, I mean, I'm not jumping out in front of that bus and just telling you that Vin's wrong, okay? I mean, I, you know, I think he's probably right, to, to an extent. Um, there, I think, is a lot of pent-up demand for people to, to get out and do all sorts of things. Uh, I enjoy the movies as much as the next guy. I'd probably go to the movies maybe, on average, two or three times a year. I don't go to the movies that often. Um, I'm not really sure why that is. I mean, maybe it's just maybe it's just keeping busy. Um, but, but I, I, have always, I, I feel like the pandemic, I feel like a lot of people f feel like that, that this is going to be something where we're just going to be doing everything differently from here on out. And that's just, you got to get used to that. And I, I mean, I just disagree with that. I mean, I, I think we're going to be doing some things differently. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. Um, I, I, I don't think people are not going to want to go to the movies anymore. I think there are going to be plenty of people that still want to go. Now, I, I do think that greater market opportunity is probably one that's shrinking a little bit. I think that just as, as the internet has disrupted so many things in our lives, as technology continues to offer new ways of doing things, we have new 
ways to get things, right? Distribution is just completely different today than it was 20 years ago. Um, and, and so that certainly plays a role in how people will uh, go to the movies here in the future. And I, and I think that just fewer people really feel the need to go do that. But I, I do think there are plenty of people that still want to do it. And I think that you have plenty of folks in Hollywood with an interest in making sure that that happens. Um, so I think this was a very encouraging uh, step in the right direction. I think we've still got a little ways to go before people really do feel uh, totally comfortable with it. Um, it. Everybody's a little bit different in, in how in how we're kind of coming out of this, right? I mean, I, I I feel great about being able to just get out and do stuff, and you know, no concerns. Other people feel a little bit uh, more trepidation, and that's understandable. So we all kind of have to get past this on our own on our own time. Uh, line and, and that'll that'll play into this a little bit, but it's definitely encouraging to see that people are willing to go back out. And I think if you continue to get good quality content out there, I mean, listen, the, you you could make the argument that that Hollywood has been not not producing the most quality content for the cinema here uh, lately, right? I mean, we, it's been a golden age for television, and I think movies have suffered. So they need to get past this uh, reboot mentality. And they need to get some fresh new franchises in there, some fresh new content, some fresh new ideas, and that might that might reignite that interest even a little bit more. But this is one of those movies that if you if you're going to go see this movie, it's going to be better on the big screen. And and no same for Black Widow in a couple of weeks. Like the you know these these are the movies that um, are going to save movie theaters. It's absolutely no question about it. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Got an email from David Baker. He writes, around 10 years ago, I decided to invest 10% of my IRA in individual stocks and the rest in low-cost index funds. I picked Amazon, Netflix, Facebook, SolarCity, which became Tesla, and some less spectacular stocks and a couple of losers, too. Now, because of the growth of the big ones, my portfolio is 40% individual stocks, 20% is almost Amazon alone. Any advice about taking profits versus letting your winners run? I love the fact that David didn't just highlight his winners because, <laughs> because that's what investing is. It's like, yeah, I bought these stocks, and you know what? A couple of them are still underwater 10 years <laughs> yeah. later. You know? and, and some of them are just kind of, yeah, they're, yeah, they're fine. They're yeah. fine. <laughs> but, th- but then I've got this small group. And holy cow, are they driving the bus? Yeah. Well, and that's that's the way it works out. I, I love this question and the way he sets it up, David. So thank you first and foremost, because the tennis years ago thing, I think really that is that is that is key to this, right? I mean, that is the key to everything is having that time to work for you. And then you look back and you say, Wow, what what just happened? Because you see those those companies that have just been able to run and succeed and continue to do well. And it sounds like, based on the email in in investing in the the way he approached it with the ten percent of his of his IRA and individual stocks and the rest in low cost funds, it it sounds like from that he's he's somewhat familiar with himself as an investor too, like the risk tolerance that he that he's able to stomach, right? I mean, we're all different where that where that. Uh, where that comes into play, and and so I I like that he kind of went into this knowing this is this is how I deal with risk, and so I'm going to invest accordingly, um, and so so hats off to you, David. Very well done. And let me just say this is a very nice problem to have. 
so, so you know, <laughs> don't feel badly about it. Um, I, I don't think I don't. So, like a portfolio being 40% individual stocks, I don't find to be too much at all. I mean, mine, mine is is a lot more. I mean, when you add in real estate and everything else that we have in our lives, I mean, I, I individual stocks make up the 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 just uh, the, the most of my in investment portfolio. Um, I I don't think I have as much tied into Amazon as is is twenty percent, but I mean Amazon is a a many times over a uh, bagger for me over the years. I mean I've owned it for probably ten or eleven years as well, um, and so it's become a bigger part of my portfolio as as have a lot of other companies. And so I think you know one of the things one of the ways you can combat this and kind of not worry so much about the fact that you have twenty percent tied to Amazon or forty percent tied to individual stocks. Introducing more individual stocks into your portfolio can help sort of spread that risk around and, and make you feel like you're not over allocated to one particular class or one particular name. Um, I, everybody kind of has their own perspective on what to do with those winners. And there is a point when a winner becomes more of your portfolio than you're comfortable with. And then you have to decide what you want to do. I mean, I think for us, generally speaking at The Motley Fool, we kind of like to to we like to take that angle of go ahead and pull the weeds and water your flowers. In other words, you have a couple of losers there that you've noted. Now maybe maybe it's time to just pull those out of the portfolio and get rid of them, and then you can allocate that money towards other ideas. Um, another another way that you can go about it is to methodically you can take this slowly, is to sell a little bit at a time of companies where you feel like you have uh, more exposure than you're comfortable with, and you can reallocate that money towards either individual stocks or low-cost index funds. I think, I think those are all great options. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I really do feel like that the, the real solution to this dilemma Diversification really does help in so many different ways. I mean, there's just so many benefits of being of being well diversified. And I would rather be overly diversified than not diversified enough. I think the argument for many people is they say, well, if you own too many stocks, well, then you're just mimicking an index. And in some cases, that that may be true. But but it doesn't it doesn't equate that if you own too many stocks, then you are an index. That that doesn't square. And so um, you know, I, I think that for for you. Take it slow. If you feel like you need to whittle down some of those winning positions to just take a little bit off the table, it's totally acceptable to do. It sounds like with an IRA, you don't have to worry about any tax implications. Um, and then chances are probably that you don't have to worry about any transaction costs either, because those are, in most cases, zero. And so you can do it a little bit at a time. And I, and I think that's what I would, I would encourage you to do is no matter what, just feel comfortable taking it slowly, because it doesn't sound like uh, you need to worry too much. And, and I think being overweight in a company like Amazon, Amazon's going to be around for a while. I feel pretty good about holding that position for the time being. But at some point, you may feel comfortable whittling that thing down a little bit and reallocating to other ideas. Jason Moser, great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.